welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. I know we took a small break last week. Honestly, life was just a little bit intense for me, aka it was the middle of midterms, and I had a bunch of student papers I needed to grade, and since that job theoretically is my full-time job, aka it's the one on my resume, I decided to give that the priority over the podcast as much as I love the podcast, but don't worry, I'm back. Oh, and yeah, there was a teeny tiny little presidential election in the United States. No big deal. It only took us a few days to determine who our next president was going to be, and our current president hasn't exactly conceded, but who cares about little details like that? What matters is Donald Trump lost. Fuck yes. When I found out the news on Saturday, I literally was paralyzed by shock for a few minutes and then was so excited, I promptly went and ran my third fastest 5k of all time. Not that I'm keeping track or anything. Yes, we still have so much further to go as a country. First up, turning the Senate blue again. But honestly, having an actual fascist out of the White House feels amazing. I am so happy. But enough about the past. Except not really, because what is this podcast about if not the past? For this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about, guess what? Yet another terrible marriage. This time at the marriage of Isabel of Bavaria and Charles VI of France. A marriage that dealt with more downs than ups, including both a civil war and in a hundred years war, which really makes the current situation in the United States seem not that bad. The study guide around this marriage involves a fiery ball, unexpected nudity, and one of the more difficult husbands in European history. Let's begin. Isabel of Bavaria was most likely born at some point between 1370 and 1371, according to most modern-day historians, but if you do the math around when certain events in her life happened and how old she most likely was during said events, she may have been born as early as 1368, because as always, we will never actually know the birth year or birth date of a queen who was born before 1500. We also don't know exactly where Isabel was born, but most historians think she most likely was born around Munich in modern-day Germany. We also don't have a consensus on her name. Depending on what language you're reading in, Isabel's Bavaria could be called Isabel, Isabel, Isabella, or even Elizabeth for reasons. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to be calling her Isabeau, because, hey, it's a fun name that we haven't used yet, and that's what the majority of the sources I was reading refer to her as. Isabel of Bavaria was the only daughter of Stephen III, the Duke of Bavaria in the Holy Roman Empire. Bavaria was situated in modern-day Germany, and Tadea of Visconti, the daughter of the Duke of Milan and the granddaughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, which meant that Isabeau, when she was born, was the great-granddaughter of the Holy Roman Emperor. 
by the time Isabeau was born, Bavaria was one of the strongest kingdoms within the Holy Roman Empire, which meant that Isabeau was set up as quite the prize on the marriage market. In addition to her, her parents had two sons, one Louis, who was older than Isabeau, and one who was younger and who died in infancy, so we don't care about him. As usual, we don't know really anything about Isabeau's childhood. We do know that her mother, Tadea, died when Isabeau was around 11, and apparently her father, Stephen, was absolutely heartbroken by Tadea's death and would celebrate an elaborate funeral mass on the anniversary of her death every year with his children. We also know that Isabeau was very close with her older brother, Louis, something that would recur throughout her life, and that she had a fairly good education for the time period, which makes sense given her status at court, as well as the larger status of Bavaria within medieval Europe. By the time she was a teen, Isabeau was known for being quite the beauty. Despite this reputation, we actually have no idea what Isabeau looked like. Once again, this is a trend we have when it comes to the appearances of medieval queens. Some sources say that she was small and blonde. Some sources say that she was tall and had dark brown hair. And then some sources say that she may have had some sort of disability and had trouble walking, but that she was still incredibly good looking. No matter what the source, we do know that by the time she was in her mid-teens, Isabeau was definitely on the European marriage market. And this reaches its climax in 1385 when she becomes engaged and then married to Charles VI, the King of France. Charles had been the King of France since 1381 when he was 11. And based on these dates, we do know that Charles and Isabeau were about the same age. When they get married in July 1385, both of them were around the age of 16. So yes, on the younger side to be getting married, but once again, we don't have a disgusting age gap like we've seen in the past. The marriage between Isabeau and Charles VI was largely organized by one of Isabeau's uncles, Frederick of Bavaria, who was the duke of a smaller part of Bavaria. Frederick was a major ally of Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, and Philip was Charles's uncle and had briefly served as one of Charles's regent and was basically the one to talk Charles into the marriage. Charles readily agreed to the marriage. After all, at the time, France was in the middle of what would eventually be the Hundred Years' War against England. They were around year 50 of the war. And because they were so deep into this war, France really did need some external allies, and one really great ally would be some strong power within the Holy Roman Empire, aka Bavaria. So the marriage gets arranged. Isabeau's trip to France for the marriage ended up being more eventful than she probably was expecting. During the 1380s, 
the French royalty had this weird thing where they insisted on seeing the king's future bride nude before the wedding was allowed to take place. Shockingly, Isabeau's father was not super into this concept, but he agreed to allow it in order for the marriage to happen. However, he decided that no one was going to tell young Isabeau that, yeah, she was going to have to stand naked in front of a bunch of old men. Instead, she was told that she and her uncle Frederick were going to the French town of Amiens for a pilgrimage. On the way from Bavaria to Amiens, she got caught up to speed on all the etiquette that she would need to be a French queen. And then once in Amiens, she got to do that whole surprise nudity inspection, which must have been so much fun. But apparently, Isabeau's body was banging enough that the French nobles approved, and three days later, she and Charles got married. The marriage between Charles and Isabeau started out fairly well. Charles was super into Isabeau, remember, banging body from the nudity inspection, and having your husband be really into you, always a good sign. We, of course, have no clue how Isabeau herself felt, but she didn't openly protest the arrangement, and in the Middle Ages, Charles did have a reputation for being pretty good-looking. Even though Charles and Isabeau didn't get to spend that much time together at the start of their marriage, because Charles had to leave to, you know, fight the English who were trying to conquer France, he almost immediately gifted her a chateau right outside Paris, and while he was away in battle, he was pretty much constantly sending her gifts. Also at this time, Isabeau's beloved older brother, Louis, came to stay with her in Paris, and she used her newfound sway at the French court to help organize multiple marriages for him with various wealthy widows. A few years into the marriage, in 1389, Charles organized a massive coronation ceremony for Isabeau so that she could officially be named the Queen of France. Her coronation occurred on August 23, 1389. It was staged in Notre Dame, involved a day-long parade, as well as a bunch of feasts and plays, and was super elaborate and super expensive. This coronation was not was the first but not the last time that Charles and Isabeau would really show their love for throwing a ton of money at pageantry. And at this point in Charles's reign, he truly was beloved. His people literally called him Charles Bellamy, aka Charles the Well-Loved. So the average French citizen was fine with the king using their taxes to buy his wife a dress that was so huge she had to walk through doorways sideways, even though said money maybe would be better spent on, you know, weapons for the war. But anyway, I digress. While the coronation was a beautiful ceremony, that August day ended up being a little bit hotter than anyone was expecting, and Isabeau, who was around six months pregnant at the time, nearly passed out, which did cast a bit of a damper on everything. And speaking of being pregnant, Isabel and Charles would end up having 12 children together between 1386 and 1407. However, only eight of the 12 children would survive. The surviving children of 
Isabel and Charles, or Isabella, Jean, Marie, Michelle, Louis, John, Catherine, and Charles. Two of their daughters, Isabella and Catherine, would end up being queens of England for Richard II and Henry V, respectively. Generally, Isabel was closer to her children than was normal for a royal mother of the time period, aka she directly supervised their education and would get them gifts and actually kept in contact with her daughters even after they went off and became nuns or got married, which, oh my goodness, so shocking. Yes, as Isabeau became older and a little less popular at the French court, rumors were spread that she just did not give a fuck about her children, but during their actual childhood, Isabeau was praised for how much she loved her children. Overall, the early years of her reign as queen were pretty great for Isabeau. She had that reputation for being beautiful, and she was also known for being extremely pious and a patron of the arts, aka the three things that a queen should be known for. Within larger court politics, she also was doing a good job, or as much of a job as a woman could do in medieval France. Remember, her husband Charles VI had become king of France when he was only 11, which meant that his early years as king had involved a regency. And during that earlier regency, the French court had been broken into factions that were dominated by Charles's various uncles. While Charles was ruling in his own right by now, said uncles still had quite a lot of sway over the French court. While Isabeau became particularly close to Philip the Duke of Burgundy, after all, he had been the one to set up her marriage, she did help ease some of the overarching tensions at the court between Charles's uncles and quickly became known for being a pretty efficient mediator. And yeah, things were going great for about the first seven or so years of the marriage and Isabeau's time at court. But everything changes in August 1392 when Isabeau was 22 years old. That summer, Charles suddenly suffered from a bout of insanity. During a ride with some of his knights, he suddenly developed a fever and started fighting the men who were on the ride with him, including his younger brother, Louis, the Duke d'Orléans. Ultimately, Charles killed four of his knights, seriously wounded his younger brother, Louis, and then fell into a four-day coma. At the time, no one knew what caused the attack or the coma because, come on you guys, we're in the 1300s. No one knows anything about medicine. Nowadays, from a modern perspective, it's most likely that Charles suffered from some sort of psychosis that may or may not have had a genetic component to it. Ultimately, Charles did end up waking up from the coma and most likely was helped by this 92-year-old doctor who was weirdly competent for the time. In response to Charles's mental health attack and coma, his uncles swooped right in and reseized power. They dismissed the council of advisors that Charles had been using in the last few years to help him rule. Even after Charles woke up after that four-day-long coma, the uncles were still there 
and did their best to try to keep power. However, Charles said that he was going to create a plan in case he suffered another attack or another coma. And as it turned out, this was really smart on Charles's end because he would continue to have attacks of mental illness, which would get worse and worse and longer and longer for the rest of his life. As part of Charles's plan, he made Isabeau the garden of all of their children, including the Dauphin, aka the heir to the throne of France. He also said that his brother Louis, as well as his uncles, would help Isabeau raise the children if needed, but that Isabeau would have final say over the day-to-day running of the children's life. However, Charles did say that if he died before his oldest son reached the age of majority, Louis, not his uncles, or Isabeau would get to act as the regent for the country. While it made sense that Charles would put a man before his wife in terms of being regent, the uncles weren't exactly pleased with being passed over for their nephew. But by the end of 1392, it looked like things were okay. Charles's health seemed fantastic. They had a plan in place in case he suffered from another attack. And while Isabeau probably was still pretty shaken, things looked to be on the up and up. In fact, things looked so great that in January 1393, Isabeau decided to throw a masked ball at court. The ball was meant to honor one of her ladies-in-waiting, who was getting remarried, but it also may have been a way to celebrate the fact that her husband was all better. That her husband was all better. For the ball, Charles and some of his friends decided to dress up as wild men from the wood. As part of the costume, Charles and his friends soaked their clothes in resin and then covered the resin-soaked clothes in linen and flax, aka their costumes were extremely flammable, which maybe wasn't the best choice for a nighttime ball where the only source of light was candles and torches. And would you look at that? During one part of the ball, Charles's brother Louis accidentally brushed against one of the men with a torch and the man's outfit caught fire. Quickly, the fire spread among the other men's costumes. Remember, all of them were extremely flammable and soon they were all on fire, including the king. Charles was only saved because one of his female cousins had the foresight to use her truly massive and elaborate dresses train to cover and smother the fire. Ultimately, only Charles and one of the other dancers who was dressed as a wild man survived. The affair soon became known to the wider society as the Ball de Ardents, or the Ball of the Burning Man, and it made the monarchy look terrible. First of all, the ball had cost a lot of money, which maybe the French government should have been using in slightly better ways. Remember, we're still in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, and look at how that had ended up. Also, it made the monarchy look kind of weak and foolish. They were being super extravagant, and it literally ended in death. 
Ultimately, Isabeau and Charles's brother Louis were largely blamed and suffered a real blow to their popularity. It was so bad that Louis had to make public alms and donate a ton of money to the church in order to get some forgiveness. And a few months later, things got worse when in June 1393, Charles VI suffered yet another attack and could no longer rule. Despite the plan he had created with his uncles, brother, and Isabeau the year before, infighting almost immediately broke out at court. The main debate was over who would be the regent when the king was alive but incapable of ruling. Would it be Louis, Charles's brother, like Charles had wanted, or would it be his powerful uncle, Philip, the Duke of Burgundy? For the next few years, Charles's reign was broken up between him having attacks and him being largely lucid. According to the contemporary records, throughout this time, Isabeau stayed loyal to him, aka they continued having sex, they had several more children together, although Charles would become physically violent during some of his more severe mental health attacks. During his periods of lucidity, Charles began to grant more power to Isabeau. By 1402, Charles had said that Isabeau would be in charge of running both the treasury and would be the Dauphine's official guardian when he was unable to rule, which was a real step forward in terms of power compared to the original 1392 view. By 1403, life with Charles had become basically impossible for Isabeau. His fits of madness were getting longer and longer and more and more extreme. Due to how violent he could get during his attacks, it was no longer fully safe for her or the children to be in the palace with him, so she ended up moving the family out of the royal residence. As soon as she did this, Isabeau started to become extremely criticized at the royal court for this choice, even though it really was for her and her children's physical safety. However, by 1405, it seemed like this choice was the right one. That year, Charles began to develop what was known as the glass delusion. Essentially, Charles was convinced that he was made out of glass and would, re and would refuse to allow people to touch him unless he was wearing a suit of specially reinforced clothing. By then, in order to keep Charles somewhat contented, Isabeau and the rest of the regents had set Charles up with a special mistress. So Isabeau was now completely estranged from her once beloved husband. And remember, Isabeau was only in her early 30s by now. And because of the whole living separately from her husband thing, rumors were starting to swirl around about Isabeau's love life. Over the last few years, Isabeau, unsurprisingly, had become very close to Charles's younger brother Louis, the Duke d'Orléans, which made sense because he was one of the other people who was in charge of running the country with her. But, of course, rumors started that they were sleeping together, which made both of them extremely unpopular, especially at the royal court. Around the same time that these rumors started, Philip of Burgundy 
died, and his son, who's known to history as John the Fearless, showed up to help out with the regency. As it turned out, John and Louis did not get along whatsoever, and a power struggle between the two soon developed. Pretty soon, the French court, which Isabeau had worked so hard at to bring together and unite, was once again divided, which always is a great thing to have happen, especially when you're in the middle of an 100 years war, because yes, the 100 years war is still going on, lest we forget. Pretty soon, the French court was between the Armagnacs, aka the supporters of Louis slash the Orleans family, and the Burgundians, aka the supporters of John the Fearless and the family of Burgundy. Initially, Isabeau, and by extension, her children and the Dauphin were Team Louis slash Team Armagnacs, but that would continue to change. In 1407, Louis got murdered in a slightly sketchy way, but let's be real, what political murder isn't slightly sketchy? In response, Isabeau decided that it would be in her best interest to ally with the Burgundians, specifically John the Fearless. But in 1413, she switched sides yet again, and would continue to switch sides depending on what she felt would best benefit her children, aka whichever one of her children was currently the Dauphin. While all this was going on, the Hundred Years' War continued to happen, and the English were doing super well. Thank you so much, France, for having a bit of a civil war happening while we're trying to conquer your territory. Oh, and as if things weren't bad enough, during this period, two of Isabeau's sons with Charles died, so we keep getting new dauphines, which makes the internal situation in France even shakier. Things really hit a low point for France in general in 1415, when Henry V of England won the Battle of Agincourt. During that battle, about an entire generation of French knights were killed, which is just a huge loss for France as a whole, and just, yeah, it's a mess. It looks like France isn't going to be able to recover militarily in terms of territory, and we still have that internal Burgundian-Armagnac conflict. Then, two years later, Isabeau gets captured by the Armagnacs, she was vaguely Team Burgundy at this point, and they imprison her in a tower in the city of Tours. That same year, yet another one of her sons dies, so by now, her only surviving son, her youngest son, Charles, who is 14, becomes the Dauphin of France. Charles is married to the daughter of a leading Armagnac and supports the Armagnacs, so he's on that side of the internal struggle. But Charles isn't exactly helping his mother get out of her imprisonment, even though he could due to being friends with the Armagnacs, so Isabeau forms a new alliance once again with John the Fearless, who helps free her. With this brand new Isabeau Burgundy alliance, John the Fearless managed to seize control of the city of Paris, and once he had Paris under control, he managed to get himself named 
sole regent. Charles the Dauphin saw that this maybe wasn't the best situation for him and promptly fled the city since he was pro-Armagnac. But the situation between the two sides couldn't remain fighting forever. Remember, they do have to deal with England at some point, so they agreed to meet and sign a peace treaty. But Dauphin Charles ended up massively double-crossing John the Fearless and literally had him hacked to death on a bridge outside Paris. Somehow, this assassination was enough to pull Charles VI into lucidity for the first time in years, and he promptly disinherited the Dauphin before falling back into madness. Charles VI's decision to disinherit his son meant that France didn't really have a legitimate ruler anymore, which was kind of a massive problem. Despite the death of John the Fearless and all the resulting drama, Isabeau would remain Team Burgundy for the rest of her life, even though that didn't mean being against her beloved son. By now, Isabeau decided that the best thing for France's future was to make some sort of peace with England, as odious as that might be. In May 1420, she was one of the signatories on the Treaty of Troyes. The treaty married her youngest daughter, Catherine of Valois, to Henry V of England. The treaty also said that Charles VI would remain the King of France, but since everyone knew that Charles VI couldn't actually rule, Henry V of England would act as Charles's regent. It also said that after Charles VI died, the throne would not go to the Dauphin, who after all was disinherited, but instead would go to the children of Henry and Catherine, and that Henry V would act as said child's regent. Basically, the goal of the treaty was to create a system where France and England would remain separate, but would technically be ruled by a single person, because we all know how well situations like that turn out historically. As a result of the treaty, Catherine and Henry do end up getting married. The year after the treaty is signed, in 1421, Catherine of Valois gives birth to a son, who is also named Henry, and almost as soon as the baby is born, Henry V dies, which, yay, that won't cause any instability whatsoever. The next year, Charles VI dies, and because of the treaty, the throne of France went to Catherine's son, Henry VI of England, who is literally an infant, which meant that a whole other round of drama kicks off, and that round of drama includes one Joan of Arc, and we don't really have time to get into all of that right now. After the treaty was signed, and by 1422, Isabeau returned back to Paris. By now, her status within France was fairly uncertain. None of the sides really wanted much to do with her, and she mostly lived with her brother's surviving widow. After 1422, we don't really know that much about Isabeau's life until she died in September of 1435 in Paris at around the age of 65 due to natural causes. After her death, Isabeau developed a pretty awful reputation. Most of the sources accused her of being extremely adulterous, wasting French money on luxury and her appearance, betraying French interests to England, and being a totally 
weak and indecisive leader during internal unrest. But, and this point of view of her continued uninterrupted, basically from the decades after her death, and was perpetuated by both the Burgundian and Armagnac sympathizers until the early 20th century. Like so many of the women I've covered in this series of bad marriages, more recent scholarship has started to cast Isabeau of Bavaria into a different light. More recent scholars have recognized that during her actual lifetime, many of her contemporaries were much more sympathetic towards Isabeau and wrote about how she was a really great wife and mother pre-Charles's mental health attacks and how early on in her marriage and reign she was pretty beloved, as well as recognizing how young she was when everything went kind of tits up. A lot of the more recent scholarship also recognizes that, yes, she did screw up quite a lot post her husband's insanity when she was having to make choices, but also she was in a really difficult position. After all, France was in the middle of an 100 years war. No one was really listening to her. There was a civil war going on that she couldn't control, and she seemed to do the best that she could. Her priorities were never really herself, but protecting her children, and I do think we have to recognize that. I don't think Isabeau's ever going to sort of be completely, like, rehabilitated the way, say, Joanna the Mad's being rehabilitated, or even Isabella the She-Wolf is being rehabilitated, but I do think it's fair to look at the past narratives about her with a slightly more skeptical and critical eye and ask, is it fair to only judge Isabeau of Bavaria. So yeah, that's Isabeau. As always, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick recap of her life and times. Isabeau of Bavaria was most likely born between 1370 and 1371, the daughter of Stephen III, the very powerful Duke of Bavaria. In 1385, she was married to Charles VI, the King of France, who, luckily for her, was around her age. This marriage was to help France shore up European support as they continued to face off against the English in the everlasting Hundred Years' War. From the outset, the marriage between Charles and Isabeau seemed to be pretty fantastic. After all, the couple was around the same age, they seemed to be pretty into each other, and they soon had quite a few children. They would end up having 12 children together, eight of whom would survive. Even though Charles had to leave Isabeau pretty early on in the marriage, he sent her many gifts, including a chateau and lots of jewelry. Isabeau even became known early on in the marriage for being an excellent queen, with a reputation for being beautiful, pious, a patron of the arts, and great at easing some of the tensions at a French court that until recently had been divided by a regency made up of Charles's various uncles, all of whom wanted power. But all that changed in August 
1392 when a 23-year-old Charles suffered the first of what would be a series of mental health attacks. In this particular one, he suddenly started fighting a group of his knights, killing four of them, and falling into a four-day coma. Charles did eventually recover from the attack, and he, his uncles, and his younger brother Louis made a plan for if an attack occurred again. Under this plan, Isabel, Isabel would be the guardian of the children, while his uncles and Louis would serve as regents for the kingdom with Louis in charge. However, the uncles were not exactly a fan of this plan. And then in 1393, Charles suffered from another attack and promptly infighting broke out at court over who would really be in charge, Louis or Charles's uncles. The next decade or so was more of the same news. Charles alternated between being healthy and suffering from attacks. By 1403, his attacks were so bad that for her and her children's safety, Isabeau moved out of the palace and promptly got criticized by basically everyone for abandoning her husband. But by then, Charles' mental health was so unstable that he was convinced that he was made out of glass and would break if anyone touched him. So yeah, he definitely wasn't ruling. Due to this Due to this instability, the French court was pretty much divided into two factions. The Armagnacs, who supported Charles's brother, Louis, the Duc d'Orléans, and the Burgundians, who supported Philip of Burgundy, Charles's uncle, as well as Philip's son, John the Fearless. In 1407, Louis got murdered, and France basically fell into a civil war between the Armagnacs and the Burgundians. For the next 10 years or so, Isabel would keep switching what side she was allied with, depending on who she felt would be the most helpful to both her and her children. While all this was going on, France was still in the middle of the 100 Years' War with England, and England took advantage of the internal stability within the kingdom to conquer more and more territory. By 1417, Isabeau had formed her final alliance with the Burgundians. The same year, her final son, Charles, who was 14, became the Dauphin of France after all the rest of his brothers had died, and he had made a strong alliance with the Armagnacs. During an attempted peace negotiation, Charles had the leader of the Burgundians, John the Fearless, murdered, which pulled his father, Charles VI, into a brief spell of lucidity, and Charles VI had Charles the Dauphin promptly disinherited. Suddenly, France did not have a legitimate ruler, and things were looking bad for the country. Isabeau had no other options. She had to make some sort of treaty with England. The resulting treaty was the 1420 Treaty of Troyes, which did several things. First, it married her youngest daughter, Catherine, to Henry V, the King of England. It also said that Charles VI would remain King of France, but Henry V would act as his regent. Then it said that after Charles VI died, the throne would not go to his son Charles, but instead to any children that Henry V and Catherine had, and that Henry V would continue to act as France's regent. This treaty 
was extremely unpopular in France and made Isabeau super unpopular. The next year, Catherine did give birth to a son, but Henry V died almost immediately after. The next year, Charles VI died, and according to the treaty, the French throne went to Catherine's son, Henry VI of England, who was an infant, which led to a whole other round of fighting with Joan of Arc. After the death of her husband, Isabeau returned to Paris, where she would live in quiet obscurity until her death in September 1435, around the age of 65. So, Isabeau of Bavaria. Definitely a woman who's been painted as a villainess in history. I think that's unfair. I think she's a little underestimated, slash people forget what a tough position she was in. I don't think she's a hero per se, but I do think we should be a little bit nicer to her. Most of my research for this episode came from the Encyclopedia Britannica article on Isabeau, Sharon Jansen's article on her, Susan Abernathy's article on her, and Barbara Tuckman's iconic book, A Distant Mirror. As always, for a full list of sources as well as relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to financially support the podcast, you can do so by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. Patrons get access to a bunch of fun bonuses, like getting to suggest study guide topics and access to our bi-monthly tangent casts, where I talk about a person, place, or thing that didn't quite fit in to a full-length study guide. The upcoming tangent cast is going to be on one of Isabeau's daughters, who also became a queen, Isabel of Valois. The next episode of the study guides is going to be shifting away from royalty. As fun as royalty is, I wanted to talk about a woman with a sad marriage who still managed to actually change lives in society. What can I say? The 2020 election inspired me. So I'm going to be talking about the marriages of Harriet Taylor Mill. Until then, you can reach out to the podcast on social media. We have Twitter at Sad Girl Study Pod and Instagram at Sad Girl Study. And as always, help the podcast grow. Tell a friend or subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let us know how we're doing. Rate or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks.